Tony on Broadway for Monday, June 8th, 2020, the day after the Tonys. Yes. Oh, man. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway stars James Marino. James, we have been doing a show on this day, not like the date, but the yeah. day um, after the Tony Awards for this would have been our fifth year. And we generally record it immediately after the Tony Awards. It feels very weird on this very Sunday, the first Sunday of June to be recording at 8.15 because there are no Tonys. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's one of those things that we took this opportunity on uh, this week on Broadway to talk about, you know, Tonys of yesteryear. Yeah, and uh, anybody who does not believe that the Grand Hotel performance um, oh with God. the great Michael Jeter uh, is the greatest Tony Rewards performance of all time, we will have a fight. I will allow close runners up for dream girls and fun home but anything else is not acceptable as far as i'm concerned oh fun home we didn't talk about that but we talked about grand hotel and michael jeter and and we talked about and i am telling you from dream girls mm -hmm. but we didn't talk about fun home that's one we missed it which is a good one oh, it's a really good one yeah absolutely it's hard right? i mean there's so many great performances oh, yeah, over the years absolutely. it's hard to get them all but that's a that's a great one but if you if you all want to reminisce about tony awards from days gone by you can head over into our feed it is this week on broadway from sunday with peter james and michael you can also go back one more day into the feed on saturday when my latest episode of tell me more was released i spoke with uh, ain't too proud hamilton and motown star nick walker about kind of just what it's like to be a black man a black person a black artist during this time nick if you don't know much of Nick. He is brilliant. I mean, he is so smart and so insightful and so compassionate and he's he's great. So I loved this conversation with him. Um, so I highly, highly recommend you listen to this. We talked very little about theater. Um, very little at all. We talked a little bit about a podcast that he does um, only be, as it you know kind of relates to what's going on in the world. But other than that, it was pretty much all just talking about the world and everything going on. So I, I really enjoyed this conversation. and I appreciate Nick being, being willing to talk to me about it. So I hope that you all get a chance to listen uh, and let Nick know how much you appreciate his willingness to uh, speak so openly and emotionally vulnerably. Well, I, I'm just really excited about the work that you and Ashley have been doing on uh, today on Broadway in the last couple of months to um, you know, bring out uh, voices that are not uh, heard very often. Uh, and it's just been uh, really wonderful to catch up with today on Broadway from afar. You know, I, I have very little to do with it on a day to day basis. Yeah. Uh, I'm more of a fan than I am involved with it. And uh, it's good to good to hear all the things that you guys are doing. Well, we appreciate that. We would obviously much prefer to be talking about shows and openings yeah. and Tony mm -hmm. Awards. But uh, we've really tried to make a concerted effort. And you've been a part of that as well with doing some interviews of your own to uh, try to talk to different folks about different things, whether that's about what's going on in the pandemic projects that are still going on. And now as we start to move more into the new reality of um, hopefully being a little bit more focused on racism in the country and uh, in theater, we can start to do that a little bit as well. So if you want to get it and be a part of our uh, little family, as we do these things, head over to patreon.com slash Broadway radio. Uh, we generally put all of our interviews out in Patreon first before they hit the regular feed. Okay. So first up in the news, 
Broadway continues to respond to Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, James, the first thing I want to mention, since today was supposed to be Tony's Sunday, um, our friend Casey Mink, who actually actually just spoke with, uh, I think, last week um, on in an interview and today on Broadway, um, she's one of the leading champions for calling out the misogyny and sexism on Broadway when it comes to creatives. She took a moment of reflection and realized that while she often talks about that, she doesn't do enough to criticize the the racism on Broadway in terms of who gets to be a Broadway creative. So she has a great, not great, but a, a well-researched and important thread about what black artists have won awards for writing and directing um, over the years. And it's, it's shocking. And I think she even said in a response to Deep Tran, like she's embarrassed how surprised she was. Um, uh, so, I mean, it really, things like, the only person who has ever won or the only black person who's ever won the Tony award for best book of a musical was Stu for passing strange. The only person, the only person who has ever, the only black person who has ever won a Tony for best score was Charlie smalls for the Wiz. Those are the only ones. Um, so it's pretty crazy. Read through that list and familiarize yourself with that and hopefully find out a way to be a part of the change. But, James, let's next get into the first real big story of the day, which is actually something that we are following up on from last week. I think it was on Thursday's episode, Wednesday's or Thursday's episode. Ashley and I discussed and then played the entire seven minute video uh, in which actor and writer Griffin Matthews discussed the racism that he says that he was subjected to during the development of his show Witness Uganda, which later became Invisible Thread. And while Tony winner Diane Paulus was not explicitly named in the video, Anyone who knows how to use the Google machine could figure out that she was the director that was being referenced in many of Matthews's claims. Well, late on Thursday night, Paulus released a statement on this very subject, which read in part, quote, I am profoundly sorry for the pain I caused Griffin and any other person involved in our process. I am learning with every new project and every new process. I recommit myself to engaging in deeper self-reflection to creating braver spaces for more collaborative art making and to listening to feedback to help me be a better artist, artist, director, and citizen. We live in a racist world and no one is immune to it, myself included. To transform this world, we need first to acknowledge the role we play in it. This letter is part of that process. James, she goes on to discuss the importance of accountability in the industry and admits that practices need to be changed everywhere, including at ART, where she is the artistic director. But my problem here, James, is that she doesn't actually speak to any specific changes or processes that she is going to enact at ART or in her own life and, and work uh, to try to make this happen. So while the statement is nice and it, it's very pretty and she's a great, you know, she does a great job of of communicating her position. It'll mean very little uh, unless it is fairly quickly followed up with some sort of substantive action, in my opinion, James. So uh I believe I, I'm not 100 percent sure here, but I believe that the first project as we get back to work here up at ART is going to be 1776. Uh, I'm not sure of the schedule, but it is certainly the first big project. Yes. And that 1776 has uh, a quite a different take uh, on it, and it would be. Absolutely. The, the first opportunity to make um, sweeping changes. Uh, the project is funded. It's ready to go. It was actually supposed to open a few weeks ago uh, up at ART. So uh, this gives us, 
you know, as soon as we are back to work, the opportunity to implement changes immediately. Wouldn't that be the case? Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on what those changes are. They do have a cast that they've actually done readings with. They actually made that cast public. Um, it is an all-female cast as of now. Um, but I have heard rumblings, and I think I've mentioned this on the show multiple times, that from the beginning, Paula said that she was not necessarily tied to the the vision for the show at ART being the vision that goes out on tour to do a lot of other stuff, multiple other stops in Los Angeles and other places before it comes to Broadway. She has said that she was open to making changes in the vision of the show at every stop if she if she wanted to. So I don't know how tied in that, you know, how many changes they are able to do, but it certainly would be an opportunity to put her money and artistic capital uh, where her mouth is. Well, I'm just saying that, you know, it's not that Diane Scott has to wait for her next show. Her next show is ready sure. to go. That's so, a very I, good point. You know, that, that, that's all I'm saying. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I, I think that <laughs> any show has got to be able to make dramatic changes uh, to make it an artistic success and a financial success. And certainly the first stop at ART and then subsequent stops around the nation before it gets to Broadway – uh, certainly there'll be some sort of changes, but you have to stick to uh, th- these uh, these other changes. I don't think are artistic changes. I think that these are are Fair. morals changes. Yeah, and and a lot of it has to do with not necessarily who you cast. Um, I mean, that's part of it, but it has more to do with the operations behind the scenes. Who are the people that are getting to be in the rooms that make decisions, whether that's from a production standpoint, whether that's from a creative standpoint, whether that's an administrative standpoint. As the artistic director of the American Repertory Theater, um, Paulus has the ability to in- implement that. Now, I'm not saying that she should fire people no. to make sure yeah, that yeah. there are, are black voices in those rooms, but there is nothing stopping her from inviting more people in. And when people naturally leave for other positions or retirement or whatever, uh, making a conscious effort to make, you know, to be aware of who you are bringing in to the fold. And that is something that not only Paulus, but everybody in the industry should be putting at the top of their priority list as we move forward. If only there were some sort of advocacy coalition. Ah, very good, James. It's, you're a little out of practice. We haven't done one of these in almost a month. But your transitions are better than they've ever been, Um, because in other news on Friday, the Broadway Advocacy Coalition released more details about their three day Broadway for Black Lives Matter again virtual forum. The coalition says that the program is, quote, rooted in the Broadway community, but is intended for all who work in the theater industry. Actors, stage managers, producers, ushers, marketing interns, industry vets, recent theater grads from New York and beyond. Day one will be entitled A Day of Healing, day two will be A Day of Listening, and day three will be A Day of Accountability. Each day's seminar runs from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can register for each day on their website. But the first day is intended for black members of the theater industry only. That's a day for healing, which makes sense. Uh, And then days two and three are intended to be done together. So if you want to sign up for day two, They encourage you to sign up for day three and vice versa. We will have a link in the show notes, of course, uh, so that you can register for any and all of those days uh, if you would like to. And finally, in this section, James, last week, a petition was launched in an effort to get the famed Apollo Theater to be considered the 42nd Broadway house. 
Currently, the House meets all of the criteria to be in New York, has over 500 seats, is in the island of Manhattan, but it is 60-ish blocks north of Lincoln Center, which is currently the northernmost Broadway house, which is also like already 10 blocks north of the rest of the theater district. But at over 1,500 seats, 1,500 and some, the Apollo is owned by the state of New York, but it is run by the Apollo Theater Foundation, which is a black-run nonprofit organization. The Apollo has not yet committed on the petition, but it has now reached over 5,000 signatures just in the past few days. Now, James, you and I texted about this last week when this kind of came out, and I think you were a little suspect on if this could work. Um, but for me, the only way that I think that this would make sense is if they had two, maybe three Broadway productions for limited runs per season and then programmed the rest of the traditional shows and events that the, the Apollo is known for around it. Since they are a not-for-profit theater, doing some sort of blend of what like a center and MTC and Roundabout do with their seasons while maintaining the programming that already makes the Apollo special could and I think would work. But I don't know if running at like a regular Broadway house, even one run by a not-for-profit uh, would work to get, especially because you would need so many tourists to keep things going. And that's a long haul for a lot of tourists to be able to go up and see a show for one evening. Yeah, I, I don't think they could run it as a, a traditional theater. Uh, and it's a very – I mean – as far as I understand, the, the Apollo is uh, and does a lot of events every year, and it's part of the 125th Street uh, community. And what goes on there, um, you know, all the different shows that come in and out of the Apollo every single week uh, is part of the vibrancy of 125. So I, I'm not sure that. Uh, operating, you know, putting uh, a Broadway play or musical in there with sets and costumes and a lighting grid and things like that, that really, it's very tough to uh, make a flexible arrangement there so that the other things are not displaced that are in the Apollo. And if they did go that route, and it would be uh, a, a hard haul to incorporate them into the the Broadway theater community as a 60 blocks difference in between uh, I, I I fear that um, I fear that if if that project were to fail that we would end up seeing another, another mall in that space on 125th Street and that would be terrible well I mean it is owned by the state. So I mean I don't know that it's necessarily going to go out of business. I think if they tried to put Broadway stuff in there and it didn't work, they just go back to what they were doing before. Um I mean they have they do have the plans for Blue directed by Felicia Rashad to go in there for a limited run it was supposed to be going over the summer. Back in 2009 they had a production of Dream Girls that that eventually went on the road. From what I understand, not only is it a big 1500 seat theater, I, I don't think that it necessarily has the backstage um, capabilities that a lot of Broadway theaters do. So I think that would be a problem too. Um, but I'm up for them trying. Like, I think that would be a very interesting thing. I think it would be if you are able to get some A-list productions to go in there for limited runs, I, I think it could, it could work. But I, I do agree with you that it needs to be done just perfectly. How about we have some uh, Broadway Cares events up there and how about we have the Tony Awards at the Apollo uh, that would be cool. Uh, you know, uh, 
you know, some sort of transition thing to to do that, and, and while not while not um, you know forcing the subject and displacing, as I said, the the, the lots of different uh, shows that are happening at the Apollo right now. So we'll see what happens with this. So what do we have in other theater news? Oh boy, James, we got some interesting stuff. So. Buckle up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last Friday or maybe Thursday late at night, a very weird casting breakdown began circulating online. It was for the upcoming tour of Tootsie. The tour had originally been set to be an equity CETA tour, I believe. But just before the already cast company was about to sign their contracts, the producers decided to rescind their offers and to take the tour out as non-equity. Then, last week, a new breakdown was released from the casting uh, agency in which every principal role in Tootsie was listed as a person of color. If you recall, the only principal performer of color in the Broadway production was Lily Cooper. Now, since then, both Troika Entertainment, which was the show's production company, and Binder Casting, who is actually who put out the breakdown, released statements that essentially said that the intention was to encourage more submissions by performers of color, not to infer that the entire production would be made up only of performers of color. They apologized for the confusion created by the poorly worded worded casting notice, but it just looked like a show that had so many problems getting people to accept it um, when it was on Broadway because of some perceived uh, insensitivities. Could not have picked a worse time, if these statements are to be believed, to have a screw up like that, James. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say say about these things. I mean, uh, the first problem is the, the the non-equity tour that's pretending to be an equity tour and going into Broadway houses uh, on the road. So, uh, which it was booked. It was pretty much booked when we all thought it was going to be a Broadway or it to be a an equity tour. Yeah. And then they changed it after it was already announced. Yeah. Uh, Wow, there, there we we have so many bigger problems right now. But uh, you know, with just getting theater restarted, uh, but you know, I'm hoping that equity and the uh, the league and uh, you know, I, I have to check this out. Maybe somebody can fact check me here. Some the Troika tours where these houses are going into. I think that they're going into houses that. Uh, league members own uh yeah i mean i think it's coming to a lot of the first run yeah uh, theaters yeah i mean now i know down here in orlando dr phillips occasionally does have non-equity tours we had the non-equity fiddler we had a, a beauty and the beast a little mermaid at the time so it is pot they do occasionally but is the are the dr phillips people part of the league that's the question. It's a it's a city owned it's a city owned yeah. building, so it, it's not like a, a Nederlander building, which we'll yeah. get to in a minute. Exactly. So what's next? Well, the Nederlanders. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this story has kind of become you know taken on a life of its own, James, despite the fact that it's not new news. Yeah. The, the story is the fact that James M. Nederlander and James L. Nederlander, the former chairman and current president, respectively of the Nederlander organization combined to donate $160,000 to Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign and associated political action committees. Now, as a reminder, 
our good friend Robbie Rizal tweeted out the fact that he had been talking about this in 2016. Um, but given everything that has happened in the subsequent four years, it is now becoming a bigger deal uh, at this point in time. Both Nederlanders have regularly given to both parties throughout the years, but they only gave $1,500 to Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. They did contribute to um, Mitt Romney's uh, campaign in 2012. They donated a combined $122,900, but did not give anything to Barack Obama. Since 2016, though, they have not contributed to Donald Trump at all. Can I they, uh, interject here? Yeah, go for it. James Needlander died in 2016. Okay, well. Uh, so, so he stopped donating. One so of them. On stage blog, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other one has not donated. So James, um, let me pull up Open Secrets because I've got this. Yeah. Um, James, James M. Niederlander died uh, in 2016. James L. Niederlander has not contributed to Trump since then. However, he has contributed to both Republicans and Democrats uh, in, this, in the subsequent years. However, the only two presidential candidates that he has contributed to were Kirsten Gillibrand and Pete Buttigieg, both Democrats who were running for the nomination who obviously did not win. Um, and um, the, a lot of their money, uh, Pete Buttigieg has actually returned money um, to James Niederlander and now that his campaign was suspended. Um, not, uh, he has not uh, also contributed to Joe Biden at this point. So, James, there's been everything from a call for people to boycott Niederlander theaters. Um, I, my thing is, is like, one, as Robbie said, this is not new news. But two, like, honestly, I just assumed that every theater owner was doing this. Like, I don't think I looked up um, the, the Schubert owners. I didn't see any any political contributions from them at all. Uh, but I, it was just a, a quick cursory search. So I might not have been looking up the complete names. But like. People with a lot of money donate to both parties a lot, and they're not necessarily vote. They're not necessarily contributing on anything other than what can help their bottom line. And I'm not saying that's for everybody, but like that's fairly common practice. So, like, uh, yes, I would like for no one to ever contribute to Donald Trump ever, but like this isn't a surprise to me. I guess I, you know, uh, we've talked about this before. Jude Jamson, Stephen Roth. Is the mm -hmm. is one of the number one reasons that Donald Trump is president. Yep. Stephen Roth is the first person. Stephen Roth, who is Daryl Roth's husband, Jordan Roth's father, was the one of the first billionaires to step out into the limelight and say, "Donald Trump is my man, and let's make him president." He raised uh, tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars of Donald Trump, and he's the president of Jamson. This is 2016. We've talked about that before, but. I on stage blog is a piece of shit. Nobody should read it. Uh, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, okay. Sensational and misleading all the time. So, what do we have in feel good recommendations? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one other thing I'm going to talk about here real quick. This is quick news. Um, uh, last week or late last week, maybe over the weekend, um, Donna Marie Asbury confirmed that after 20 years playing the oh, role yeah. of June in Chicago on Broadway beginning in March of 1999. She actually left the production last year on the one year anniversary um, of leaving the show. She confirmed that she had been entered into the Guinness book of world records for the longest career playing the same role 
in a Broadway show. Uh, if anybody has ever followed anything with the Guinness Book of World Records, it is a rather arduous process to get something in there. They do not take that stuff lightly. Um, so uh, congratulations to her. She played June for 20 years. She also understudied Roxy, Velma, and Mama Morton. So, yay. Uh, okay, so now we will move on to the feel-good recommendations. The first one, is this one is kind of a bittersweet recommendation, but it, it did make me feel good. It was very sweet. Um, on CBS Sunday morning, Mo Rocca, Broadway vet in his own right, um, spoke with Andre DeShields, Bernadette Peters, Seth Rudetsky, and James Wesley, as well as Jennifer Ashley Tepper, um, about the Broadway shutdown on the day that would have been the Tony Awards Sunday. They also talked a lot about the meaning, both literal and emotional, uh, of a ghost light and and what that means, both in historical and, um, you know, kind of metaphoric senses. Um, it's a, it was a great six, seven minute segment. Um, Andre DeShields performs a little bit on the sidewalk outside of the Hadestown Theater uh, over the Walter Kerr. So it was really great. Um, I, I loved it. Uh, CBS Sunday Morning is the best of all news shows. Um, so I would highly recommend you take a look at that. Then the folks over at the Paper Mill Playhouse combined uh, or, or brought in a bunch of former members of their Rising Star program to perform the song A Million Dreams from the movie The Greatest Showman um, in honor of the uh, the 2020 Rising Stars honors. Some of those stars included were Rob McClure, Nikki M. James and Natalie Weiss. I don't Natalie or uh, uh, Laura Benanti, who is famously a Paper Mill Playhouse Rising Star, was not included. I'm sure she was busy, but uh, whatever. <laughs> this is a great, uh, a great performance. And there was a bunch of other folks that I was not familiar with, but are obviously very talented in their own rights. And then finally, James, again, I don't know that this is a feel good recommendation, but uh, it, it brings some uh, some appreciation to heart because PBS has made the um, the previously recorded version of Anna DeVere Smith's Twilight Los Angeles available for free streaming on their website. It had um, originally been um, filmed years and years ago in 2001. It, it is when it originally aired. But then they have brought it back occasionally throughout the years, um, especially around uh, certain events. 2012, the 20th anniversary of Rodney King. Um, and then uh, subsequently in 2015, 2017, and now they're making it available for streaming based off of uh, all of the unrest that we've seen around the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Taylor and others. So you can stream that on PBS.org. We will have the link in the show notes. Um, getting to see Anna DeVere Smith do what Anna DeVere Smith does and really as she is the only one who really does this um, is remarkable and that could not be more timely. Uh, to watch Twilight Los Angeles than than right this very second. I couldn't agree more. What a what a show and Anna Deere Smith, what an actress and what a writer. What I mean, just mm -hmm. amazing. Yep. All right, Matt, why don't you get us out of here? All right, thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWW Matt. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. Thanks for kicking off your week with us. And uh, Matt and Ashley will be back and talk with you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.